episode one. We can just roll it now. Okay. So you were saying uh, about almost famous. It's been 20 years now. Yeah, and I was I saw on YouTube a video of Cameron Crowe going through his stuff, his stuff from then, from the 70s. Wow. Almost. Yeah, when they had to actually put it down on like tape or pencil and paper. Yeah. That's yeah. really exactly what he had. Is he had the tape recorder, and then he had just like a regular spiral notebook with a bunch of sti band stickers on it. He, he pulls it out of the box. It's all beat up. Like the pages are yellow. A bunch of different kinds of ink in the pages. It's like, wow. Can't even imagine what kind of stories are in there. That's an artifact. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Do they induct stuff like that into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Do oh, they have probably. Like, yeah. I know. Mom was just telling me that when when the family first met Mark, Rita's Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, she was talking to him about the Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees uh, Lonely Hearts Club Band, like the remake album. That's like Peter Frampton. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. And the, and the album cover is a like a French horn, but the valves on the French horn are like in a heart shape. And they have the horn in the they had the horn in the in the music museum that my mom was working at. And she told, oh yeah, in South Dakota. Yeah, the, and she told the Mark National that, Music Museum. She told Mark that if he would come visit her there, she'd pull the the French horn out. Because he's he was <laughs> drop he was giving her shit about not knowing that the Beatles did it first. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, she was a big Frampton fan though. She told me she saw him in Deadwood and he was just bald. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a letdown. He had such long hair back in the day. Yeah. But it was scraggly. Yeah. That's kind of funny that he's bald though. Yeah. Oh man. Do you feel like I do? I couldn't believe it. she didn't know the original Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, but I suppose it's all about what you interact with first. Yeah, it's like those movies that they have made multiple times. It's like uh, 007. Who's your 007 agent? Mine is Michael Moore. And mine is Daniel Craig. And he's yeah. still doing it. He, this is his last one. I just saw the trailer for the newest one. Yeah. Yeah, and for my older brothers and sisters, it was Sean Connery. Oh, nobody can beat Sean Connery. And then as I grow up, nobody can beat Michael Moore. Or no, what was his name? Moore. It was, uh, uh, it wasn't, wasn't Michael Moore. I can't remember now. I think Pierce Brosnan was still doing it when I was born. He only did a few, though, didn't he? Yeah, just a couple. I can't believe Daniel Craig's done as many as he's done. And you know, one of the guys, one of the things that was I thought was really kind of funny is that Broccoli, that, what was he, the producer or writer? Screenplay writer or producer for a lot of those James Bond films? I have no idea. The one other, the one other film that got real famous that he did was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> Jack's like favorite film, my boy's favorite film. That movie's awesome. But it's like cars and gadgets. Yeah, it's, it's really, like, it's a really fun movie. Yeah, it is. That was one of my favorites when I was a kid too. I think mom made sure I had that one around. Chitty Chitty Bang mm -hmm. Bang? Pretty sure. She likes to sing it. <laughs> it well, you know, it had some good music. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Dick Van Dyke was entertaining. His English accent left a lot to be desired. 
but he was really entertaining guy. Yeah. I mean, he could dance, he could sing. He couldn't quite do a British accent, but, but he could dance and he could sing, <laughs> so it didn't matter so and much. And he was funny. Yeah, yeah, he was goofy. He guy. is really funny. And kids love goofy guys. I think I saw goofy that people. before I saw Mary Poppins. Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Should have been there. Well, they used to play it on, uh, like on Sunday nights. They'd have a Disney movie every Sunday during the summer, and hmm. we'd all get together and watch it. So I'm from a family of ten, and there'd be like a just piles of kids all over in the living room just watching Walt Disney family movies. That was that used to be the thing that I did at Grandma's house when we would visit her in Fort Pier when she still lived up on the hill. She oh, just yeah. had a bunch of Disney VHS tapes in the basement, and so I would just sneak down there and watch Snow White or whatever. That was my jam over at Grandma's house. They were really good at... Uh, they, they worked really well with archetypes and they they would change they've always changed the message though so it was just a little less severe because if you ever read like the real fairy tales oh yeah are, like the hans christian anderson stories that some of them are based on they're pretty gruesome yeah like when they when they brought the slipper finally i was just thinking immediately what i thought of was cinderella yeah when they bring her the glass slipper, it's all bloody from, because the uh, her stepsisters had asked the, what is it the the huntsman, asked him to chop off a couple of their little toes that weren't doing so much, that they could so they could the try and fit into oh, that shoe. Grody. <laughs> but then you be a princess. Gross. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some of the other twisted ones that I've come across that like of course now it's this polished and oh yeah fairy tale but yeah it's all smiles the source material is all well what are what are the uh, what are the snow white uh, what's the Rapunzel yeah none Sleeping of those Beauty. stories <laughs> yeah Sleeping Beauty Sleeping Beauty was like uh, a lot of those they taught such a really good lesson though in the originals yeah. they'd be pretty gruesome but they'd teach a pretty interesting good lesson I there for a while I was reading every bit of folklore I could get my hands on that's fun well it's fun I think to it's, read. I think it's not only is it fun but it is it's like a it's like a living library of all the things that we've figured out. Yeah. And I think only recently when like these big companies started to take that take the narratives from those stories, they essentially they watered them down and they they copyrighted them and now we can't it's like we lo we lost them. We don't get them from our like grandparents or parents or uncles or whatever. Yeah. They're just kind of gone. But there's so many, like, warnings about this and that and, you know, different ways you can solve problems and different kinds of people. And, you know, I think it would, I think it would really behoove us to use that stuff again or to bring those stories back. Folklore. Yeah. yeah. Folklore. And to, like, actually, you know, any good storyteller is going to update it. 
Yeah, when they tell it. And there's a lot of good storytellers right now. Oh, man. Yeah, there's good storytellers. I like good storytellers. Your Grandpa Jack was a good storyteller. He didn't let the truth get in the way of a good story, <laughs> which is critical. Because <laughs> sometimes the, the truth can mess it all up. There's what should have happened and what happened. <laughs> man, I would love to sit down and talk with him now. He was only, I was only three when he died. Oh, yeah. Yep, you were. I was one of the last grandkids to meet him. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and it's hard to, it's hard to really interact with somebody like that when you're three. <laughs> the thing I remember is he would sit me on his lap and he had a great big bag of saltwater taffy. And he would just let me eat saltwater taffy out of this like heaping bag, like a tall kitchen bag. Of well, yeah. I mean, it probably seems like that because you were three, though. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a suitcase full. It was pretty modest. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a modest little bag. You could fit both your hands in it. But that's the thing I remember. Yeah. About talking to him. Yeah, he had some good stories. That was that was the thing that I always asked for when I was around him. His stories. Stories. We'd be on a trip somewhere. We'd be in the pickup going somewhere. And He'd say, you want to listen to the radio? And I'd say, no. You got any stories? What do you want to hear? I'd say, I don't know. So he'd just start telling me stories. I kind of like to do that when I'm getting to know somebody. Like, I don't know them very well. Like, you got any good stories? Oh, yeah. And you just see what they got. Sometimes they got some really good stuff. Yeah. Like, my boss at work, he was in the Navy, and he was stationed in Japan. And he was playing with this band, with this guy that he met over there in Japan. He told me that he didn't want to go. Like when the guy asked him, he was like, you play, you want to play in this band with me? You want to play drums? He was like, oh man, I, I don't know where I'm at. Like I don't really have my bearings. Like I'm just trying to make it through. He's like, I don't need any extra stuff. And by some way, the guy convinced him. He's like, you got to come play drums with me in this band. And he said, the, the experience that is that he had in the Japanese music scene, he's like, I'll never forget that stuff for the rest of my life. Yeah, just like so glad yeah. that he made yeah. that decision. He says, that's like the coolest thing I've ever done. I can't believe I was going to say no. Yeah, saying yes is, is a pretty powerful thing. Even when you're like, you kind of will see these opportunities arise sometimes. And some, you, it's, possible to just let them go but if you seize them they can it'll feel better it can be a big change yeah. yeah yeah i've had a couple little things like that i suppose i kind of like that feeling where somebody asks you if you want to do something and you're like i don't know how i'm going to do it but i'm going to say yes sure. and you're like <laughs> figuring this out is going to be the fun part figuring yeah. out how the hell i'm going to do this is going to be the fun part yeah, and it often is. Just kind of diving in. Yeah, it is. It'd be pretty fun. So what what was the thing that, um, I wanted to ask you this, what was the thing that got you into music? Do you, do you have like a, is there a memory of like when you decided, okay, I am going to be a musician? I can tell you about when I got my first guitar, and then there's a big gap, and then there's when I started playing guitar, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. I was like probably 11 or 12. We were in Brookings, South Dakota. Me, my mom, and my godbrother, Nathan, 
and we were in just a pawn shop, just poking around. And there was a guitar on the wall, shaped like like a Gibson SG, like Angus Young, like it's got the horns, but it was all black, and it had a uh, rosewood um, fingerboard. And it had a, I had, still have this strap that was on my first guitar. It had a black strap with a white lightning bolt. I was like, that is the coolest looking guitar <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I, I think it was, I think it was 80 bucks, but mom talked them into selling it to her for 75 and they threw in a little crappy amp for like five bucks. Ooh. It was just like a little first act Walmart amp. It was that big. Just enough to make some noise. And so I think that day we went back to grandma's house in Madison and I was playing Iron Man in the basement. Oh, really? Yeah. So you already figured out Iron on Man? one string, just like, yeah, it's, it's, that's the one like everybody figures out that or like smoke on the water. Yeah. Those are the ones. <laughs> yeah. So I was probably 11 or 12 then, and then it was a couple years and then mom got a really nice acoustic from a friend in Rapid City. And when I played it, I was just like, this sounds so good. I have to know how to make it sound better. And so I just started going, I went, started going on YouTube and looking up tutorials. That's how you, so did you do tablature or did you just Later. watch? Later I learned how to tab stuff, but uh, I, I can only now read sheet music. I couldn't, couldn't read sheet music for a long time. So you were just watching their fingers? And there's really detailed tutorials on YouTube. If you want to learn to play a specific song, they'll go, here's how the artist plays it exactly, like down to the note. There's people that are so dedicated to that kind of thing. And yeah. it really helped in terms of um, forming my attention to detail when it yeah. comes to playing and writing and all that kind of stuff. Well, in your ear. Yeah, sure. yeah. Turning your ear in. Yeah. So once, once I got the hang for um, the tutorials, I just started playing to the music I was listening to. So you have an ear. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of how I, like I, I got into, I think it was my sophomore year in high school. And uh, I was, there was high hopes that I was going to be a state champion wrestler. And uh, I got in a fight with my wrestling coach. He was putting a lot of pressure on me. And I got in a fight with him and I was done. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I walked out and the choir room was right across the, right across the hall from the wrestling room. And I walked in there and uh, he's like, hey, what do you got to do to join choir? And I'm like, just come on in. So I went to choir and I had this, I had this really good music teacher who saw some kind of talent in me and I could follow the piano really well. And so that's how I learned how to sing. It was, I cannot read music. I've tried, I've tried to, uh, you know, having a guitar, I've tried to read tablature, or work on that. I don't like those systems, huh. but I can, I can hear it and I can mimic. That's how I learned. Exactly. That's how I learned. But one thing that really made me drill piano was that I wanted to play drums when we moved to Sundance and the music teacher was like, I want all my drummers to learn piano first. Really? Because it's so helpful in terms of theory knowledge and having all the notes laid out in front of you, seeing all the sharps and flats, like 
piano will it it gives you a diagram like yeah. and it's an instrument at the same time yeah you can figure out where things sit in relation to each other and apply it to other instruments so you wanted to learn the drums bad enough that you were willing to learn piano first yes mm. well that makes sense and they had board. to you had to pay like 15 bucks or something to join the percussion program and you could you didn't have to pay anything to do anything else wow so it was a special club yeah. i think it's cuz they went through sticks, like, because there's tons of beginners, so they're just snapping sticks left and right. <laughs> snapping their heads off all the sticks. Yeah. Here, I'm going to give you two so pieces of two by four. You yeah. start with this. They would charge 15 bucks to be in the percussion program because the people that were in the percussion program often broke a bunch of the equipment. Yeah. Beating on things. Yeah. That makes sense. So you, like, uh, is there any kind of, like, competition where you want to be sometimes you want to be a guitar player and sometimes you want to be a drummer what do you mean by competition well is there like uh like do you ever have episodes where you in my own mind yeah, you mean like oh i'd really like yeah to, really like to just be a drummer oh no i really want to that's the thing i, I like about dave grohl because I, I said that's the thing I like about Dave Grohl because he was the drummer in Nirvana, like one of the biggest bands in the world. And then the next thing he does after Nirvana's over is he records an album by himself playing all the instruments, and those are the first Foo Fighters songs. And he yeah. just recruited people to play in the band. But the first Foo Fighters record is all him. So what's his background? Besides Nirvana, what's his background? How did he get into music? Do you know? I think he started playing in Washington, D.C. with this band called Scream. And um, I was watching an interview with his mom, and she was talking about, I can't remember specifically, some conventional path, like what people would normally do. They're like, you want to you finish high school, you know, get a good job, and then go do this? And, he, and she said that he basically was like, well, I really don't want to do that, and I'm going to go tour Europe with this band Scream. <laughs> and she's like, okay, all right. All right, you're good, then. If that's what you're going to do, then that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of us we look at the we look at that whole system of like getting a job that goes from eight to five and hanging everything you have on that until you retire and then you die. <laughs> we just don't see that as a good deal. Something Especially about that like, isn't attractive. Yeah, you know, like in college, a lot of people would talk about you know getting an education so that they could get a good job. I didn't want to get a good education so I could get a good job. I wanted to get a good education. So I didn't really care so much. I knew I could always kind of find a job. You were just interested in learning. Yeah, I was just interested in learning. Yeah. I remember telling one of my artist friends, I was like, yeah, you know, I really appreciate my university education. And he's like, <laughs> wait, you're serious? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Having that Having the, because our school wasn't very good. Like our high school wasn't very good. And so this stuff, you have to learn on your own. Yeah. Or you've got to have uh, an opportunity to learn this. You stuff. have to so, want to know. Yeah, you have to want to know. Because even, like even in high school, I know that a lot of people didn't pick up the information. They picked it up long enough to take a test. Yeah. But they never picked up the information. And I was always concerned with the underlying ideas and and drivers behind all this stuff. Yeah. So I wanted to know, I wanted to be a part of the big conversation. 
and the big conversation is about literature and philosophy yeah. and art religion and religion yeah. yeah absolutely it's all of that all stuff. number of things yep I remember our English teacher uh, at Moorhead State University in Moorhead he was uh, a lot of people didn't like him but one of the things that he said in his classes is how many people are here because they want to get a good job he actually said this how many are here to get a job and a few people raised their hands he's like wrong reason wrong reason to even be here this is not about getting you a good job this i like is about, it this <laughs> like is about helping you understand how to think and i appreciate it If you're still alive, <laughs> I bet you. Thanks, man. I bet you absorbed everything in that class a lot better, though. I did, except that he was, you know, although he was a interesting guy, he was a he was kind of a butthead. Oh. He he kind of tried to he he um made a lot of conflict that didn't really have to be there. Just in being, just like in trying to get a rise out of people or? Mm -hmm. Like he would, he taught uh, in his class like satanic verses that Salman Rushdie, um, Salman Rushdie book until he got enough death threats that he didn't want to. He didn't want to teach it anymore. He probably just read those so fondly. Aw. <laughs> yeah. You're listening. Oh. Looks like it's getting out there. Maybe my class will fill up. I think about going a lot. You know, but back then, we didn't have the internet. Like, one of the things that is so amazing to me now is that if I get on, if I get on a, a train of thought, where I want to know something, it's at my fingertips. And I don't you even can, have to go to the library. You can pursue it to the ends of the earth if you yeah. want to for you hours. Can, you can end. take college classes online. Yeah, they don't have to go anywhere. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to get a grade out of it. You don't have to pay, you know, a hundred thousand yeah. dollars and be in debt for the rest of your life in order to get it. The information on YouTube alone, <laughs> I know, just blows my mind wide open. Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you about my first car. Okay. My first car was a 1973 Omega, Oldsmobile Omega. And uh, it was a cool car. It was yellow and black, black vinyl top. And uh, me and a friend of mine, his dad was a mechanic. And uh, this was probably 1983 or 84. And... Uh, we stopped somewhere and there was water shooting out the bottom of my engine, shooting out of my engine, shooting out from underneath the hood and stuff. And he's like, oh man, the water pump went out. I was like, what, water pump? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, it's this thing right here in the front. I was like, well, okay, let's fill it up with water and go over to your house and fix it. He's like, all right, we'll use my dad's tools. So we take my car over there and we open the hood and we're looking at it and he goes, ah, I think you gotta take the radiator out. So we took the radiator out, we took the fan off, we took the belts off, we took all this stuff off to get 
everything out of the way so we could get to this waterfall. And I was like, okay, well, what do we do now? It's like, uh, let's just take it off and take it over to the auto parts store. I was like, okay, let's just take it off, take it over to the auto parts store. And, uh, you know, back then it was like the people that were working in the auto parts store were motorheads. They were yeah. like, they were all about that They're stuff. They were like, you don't know. Yeah, you don't know how to change a water pump? Yeah. Yeah. So then you're like, okay, well, how do I, how do I put the new one on? And they're like, well, you got to scrape off all the stuff, blah, blah, blah. And so they walk you through the whole thing. And hopefully you're paying attention yeah, because you can hold you all have, that in there. You have no other way of finding it out unless you want to buy a Chilton's book, which was what they would try to do. Well, you can buy a Chilton's book and that'll tell you exactly how to do all that stuff. But that was like 50 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> that was way too much. You know how many tanks of gas just there was back me. in the day? Yeah, just tell me. So we got the new water pump on and away we went. That's pretty awesome. I never had to do anything like that with the Volvo. No. Mm -mm. That was your first car. Mm -hmm, yeah. What was that, like a 1.8 or something like that? I don't know, honestly. It was a Volvo. <laughs> you don't have to know unless you have to work on it, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But one thing, one thing about it that uh, I think was really good is that I never had any... I never had any uh, hesitation about tearing stuff apart after that. It's like, what's the worst you can do? I mean, it was a $350 car, so what's the worst what you ifs? can do? <laughs> yeah, whatevs. Push it off in the ditch. That's not mine. I've never seen that car before in my life. <laughs> oh, yeah, grab my books out of there. Yeah, that was my first car. Did it last you a long time? It lasted me probably about, I think it was about two and a half years. I ended up cutting the top off of it. Took a torch and cut the top off really? of it so I could have a convertible. Cool. Yeah, it was right before I went into the Navy. So I had it like three, three, four years. Yeah, I had it quite a while. Cool. Put some hydraulic shocks on the back. I was going to say, if you start up. your career with it working on it, then it's probably going to be all right. Like, it, it, if you started your, your relationship with that car, changing the water pump, then... Yeah. Yeah. Then whatever the you run into, it's like, <laughs> you just got to approach it with the same vigor. Yeah. Take the crescent wrench and your meat hammer and your screwdriver out of your toolbox and get to work. But that's, you know, it's like uh, that self-directed exploration, you know, I think that's, I think it's important. And there were like the first ranch that I worked on as a kid, the guy had all kinds of little weird things that he would do to fix his stuff, just ways to like keep it running until we could work on it. But he knew how to do everything. And so I remember like, uh, have you ever seen like uh, somebody use a, a bubble gum wrapper for a fuse? Uh uh. So you put that bubble gum wrapper around your fuse, that little bit of aluminum foil, and you just shove it back in when you don't have a fuse. And it works. And it works. 
and it'll kind of blow out kind of at the same amperage if if uh, you use the right kind of bubble gum wrapper, I guess. Dang. I had no idea about that. And uh, he had another thing where if the spark plugs weren't firing, he would use a, a little piece of wood and he would jump the plug wire on the top of the spark plug and it would help it work. Like I'd seen him do that out in the field on my tractor. But he was like, this guy was a World War II veteran who was a radio repairman and then goes back and works on a ranch. And when you're, when you're 35 miles out into the country and there's, it's all gravel road going into town, you figure out ways to do stuff. Yeah, I suppose. So he had like a welders and all kinds of shit, all kinds of stuff. His bag of tricks must have been pretty deep. Oh yeah, he had a big bag of tricks. And his brother lived probably about five, six miles away and he had another bag of tricks. <laughs> so between the two of them. I feel like a lot of people my age just don't know how to do stuff. Don't know how to like apply themselves or like aren't as curious about the world or something because of the internet, you know? Like they, they're just like, all right, I can just do my thing here. Like, yeah. I, like people my age are, I guess maybe not 20, but maybe a little younger, aren't getting their driver's licenses. Like, really? why would I? Uber, Lyft, you know, like if you live in a city, you don't even really need a car. It's, that just like blows my mind. Well, especially, you know, growing up in a place like South Dakota where it's rural. It's people can, rural. people are still getting their licenses at 14 in South yeah. Dakota, still. Yeah. I wasn't quite 14, but it was close enough to my birthday they let me have my Ah, license. that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I was 13. I took the, the only, the, I had a motorcycle. The first vehicle I had was a motorcycle. And I, I got uh, about $700 saved up off that ranch job when I was like 12, 13. And uh, I was telling my mom, so the guy that I worked for, his brother had a storage place in town that stored old cars and boats and stuff like that and uh, he had somebody that hadn't paid him in a long time and so he took title of his car and it was a 64 Impala with a 327 and a four speed on the floor and it had headers on it, it looked really cool that's the easy car you, yeah the 64 Impala that's the one yep he's cruising down the street yep and I was telling my mom about how awesome this car was and how fast it probably was and all that stuff. And, and uh, she had this, uh, there was this neighbor kid who was riding around on a moped. And uh, she said, why don't you just get a motorcycle like Ricky has? And so I said, okay. So I went over to the motorcycle shop and I got the biggest motorcycle I could afford. <laughs> I come rolling back home on this motorcycle and it was a it was a seventy five CB three sixty T, and it was fast. I kind of want to pull that up. I kind of want to see it. Yeah, pull it up. It was blue, and uh, I come rolling up on that, and she's like, she pokes her head out the back door, and she said, "Where's your helmet?" And I said, "Ah, I didn't have enough for the helmet." <laughs> oh my God! You can't ride that thing without a helmet. Seventy five what? Nineteen seventy five. 
Honda CB360T. So I had overhead, overhead cams, two cylinder. Is that the one? That's the one. That is that a sweet is bike. One. Yep. So one time I had this bike and <clears throat> I didn't know how to ride a motorcycle, but I learned how on that. It, it was beautiful where I got it. It was somebody had taken really good care of it, waxed it, kept it inside, all that stuff. <coughs> so when I got it, I was just learning how, and I had all kinds of wrecks on that thing. So it didn't look so sweet after a while. But uh, I learned how to really ride that motorcycle. And uh, there was this place, there was a youth center where all the kids hung out, like kids my age, so 13, 14, 15. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I was pulling out of the alley and there were some girls that were in my class that were standing up in front of this place. And I just thought I'd kind of take off and spin up a little gravel or something. And I take off into the road and I gave it too much gas and it goes into a, it goes into a spin and I drop my leg down and it, we, I spun around and then took off straight into a wheelie. And they were all <laughs> Oh man. They were all like, what? teetering on the edge and my heart was pumping like uh, 120 beats a minute you're like oh, oh, that looked really cool it probably looked really cool, yeah. cool. I bet that looked cool yeah. they probably couldn't even see me sweating I gotta change my pants <laughs> that was a fun bike and it was like 120 miles an hour wherever I went if I'm ever living back out there like in the Black Hills I'll probably get one but I don't think I would get one out here oh they're pretty fun out here you think so Oh my gosh, yeah. It's scary though. Oh yeah, it's scary. You gotta be you, paying attention gotta, at all times. I would not want to start out riding a motorcycle here. I think that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'd go back and see if Jess would give me a good deal or something. Yeah, maybe. He's always. He's got talked a about it before. Around. He's always got a few. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't get in any of those British bikes. They're just notoriously bad. Um, the last one he had me looking at when I was curious about it was a Honda Trail 90. Trail 90. Uh, I think you're too big for a Trail 90. Now. I probably wasn't then, though. How old were you? This was probably three, four years ago. Yeah, probably not. I would have been a lot skinnier, so. Yeah. Yeah, like when I got that Honda, I only weighed 120 pounds. So, so that thing would just fly with me on it. That's awesome. I remember one time I was coming back from this ranch job, and I was on that motorcycle. And uh, this friend of mine wanted to ride. And uh, he's like, ah, give me a ride. So he's got a cowboy hat on and boots. And uh, so he jumps on the back and he's got to hold his hat. And I'm just going as fast as that thing will go down these gravel roads. And then going into town, I'm going as fast as it'll go, like 110, 150 miles an hour. But the cops I knew always stayed about two, three miles outside of town and they'd there was a big hill coming into Fort Pierce, and uh, they would wait for people to be speeding down that hill, and they would catch them. I think so, I know the one. Yeah, and so I'd slow down, and I was slowing down, and I was feeling the speed limit, and I get to my friend's house, and uh, I pull into his driveway, and I said, okay, jump off. And he's like, oh, I can't get off. And I was like, what? So I stop it and shut it off and kick the stand down. I jump off, 
and both of his plastic heels on his cowboy boots had melted to my pipes and then cooled down and were stuck. <laughs> that is like cartoon. <laughs> I know. I had, I had two black blotches on my pipes after that. The rest of the time I had that bike. I bet it was fun telling that story to people, though. Oh, yeah. And they were yeah. like, what are those big scuffs on your pipe? <laughs> You're like, cowboy boots. You don't want to end up like that guy. <laughs> That's all that's left is this little heel print. Little heel print. Riding with the devil. Yeah, that was a fun bike. You used to ramp it and do all kinds of stuff on that thing. Just terrorize it. And Sundance kids had dirt bikes they would ride to school. Well, it was my dirt bike, too. <laughs> I mean, what am I going to do, have both? <laughs> I'm just going to do everything on one. Yeah. You just got to go a little bit faster when you're going up a hill yeah. before you get to there. Yeah, it was fun growing up like that. Not a whole lot of supervision? Oh, we didn't have any supervision, really. The police, that was our supervision. I remember I they knew I didn't have a license with that motorcycle, the police. Yeah. And I was like, so I was in seventh grade or eighth grade. And uh, so I'd get out of middle school and I'd go over and watching the cop across the street from the school sitting there watching everybody leave and uh, I knew he he thought I was suspicious and he was waiting for me to get on my bike and then he was gonna get me and uh, so I would kind of wait for him to start like pulling up a little bit and, and I'd go around the back of the school and I'd head over to the railroad tracks and I'd just take off down the railroad tracks and go across the bridge that way and he couldn't follow me. <laughs> there were kids that had um, relationships like that with the cops and Sundance, the dirt bike kids and stuff. Like, and with their cars too. Like, it would be like with the cops, like, I'm gonna get you and it's like, no, you're not, you know? <laughs> yeah. Little 14, 15 year old kids. Just kind of yeah, like. And you gotta have you gotta have a little bit of like this whole thing about zero tolerance. If we all had zero tolerance, they everybody would just be fighting all the time. Miserable. Yeah. And so to have a police policy of zero tolerance just seems absolutely ridiculous to me. It seems counterproductive. Yeah. Know. I mean, they used to come out to, we had parties out on, uh, like, Bad River Road, and we'd say, okay, let's all meet at the third train bridge or whatever. So we'd all go out there. We'd have these big parties, and then the cops would show up. And I remember the first time the cops showed up, they would say, hey, you kids, put out that fire and pick up all these beer cans when you're done. And drive safe. Don't be, you know, don't be stupid. Yeah. And they'd be on the intercom saying this out of the cop car, yeah. and then they'd take off. Yeah. Because they knew if they came after everybody, I mean, there was like 200 kids at a party. So if they came after you're everybody. You're going to get like three, maybe. You're going to get three. Depending on how many officers you have with you. Plus, you're going to cause a stampede. And yeah. kids are going to fall into all kinds of places and get all torn up trying yeah. to get away from the law. Yeah. When really all they had to do was say, just be careful. Yeah. And if they see somebody in there. They might say, hey, I know your mom's looking for you. 
yeah. something like that. And that that's all you got to say. Okay, now he's going to tell my mom. So here they go. Yeah, I think this. I don't know. I think this whole policing thing now is just kind of. It's gone down a way different path than. And I think a lot of older people don't even realize what's going on. Yeah. I mean, the intolerance of the cops now is just like out the frickin' door. Yeah. It's because I know that people don't want to talk about this, but a lot of those guys are just like, I'll show everybody. Like, I didn't have any power then, but I'm going to have power now. Like, And then become a police officer. Well, and especially I know in small towns. There, I know there's there are great cops, and there are cops that that – become a cop for the right reasons and want to do good by their community and like know people in their community. And there's also cops that are shitheads and yeah. they just want to, they just want to exert force. Yeah. Like that's They it. just want to have something over you. Yeah. They just want to smush people under their thumb. That's called a bully. Yeah. And they shouldn't be in policing at all. They shouldn't have that kind of power. I mean, even as a kid, you knew better than to, like play with their ball when you were playing football or anything like that. I mean, you just knew better. Yeah. Those kind of kids, they would, they would do stuff like uh, take off with the ball or have uh, stupid rules about how you could do stuff. You know, so we would just like as kids, we would just say, "Nah, yeah, no, we'll play with this ball." Yeah, and if you want to cause problems, we'll kick you out. I like that. And kids can work that stuff out. Kids have an innate sense of uh, justice, I think. They know what justice and fairness is. And before they learn how to lie, it's just like, this is what's wrong and this is what's right. So yeah. are you going to adhere or... And yeah. they'll call people out. I love that. I love yeah. when little kids are so blunt like that. Yeah. Me call too. people on their bullshit. Yep. It's a good thing. Yeah, it is. And it's really funny sometimes when, when kids have no filter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are the best kind. That's the kind of kid I was. I think that's why I got along with a lot of those older folks when I was a kid. My dad would take me around with him. Before I went to school, you know, he'd take me around with him and go to, like, the saddle shop and go to the stockyards where he worked and the and the sale barns and all that kind of stuff. Of course, all those guys, they're also teaching you like uh, uh, how to catch, how to know when somebody's uh, pulling your leg. That was another big thing, the con, you know, that they would do on little kids just to see how they, if they would figure it out. They would work up some pretty elaborate cons. The people at that grandpa's friends, or yeah, yeah. Well, like one time, I remember one time we were going, we were going from uh, uh, let's see, Presho, South Dakota, back to Fort Pierce, and we were in his company car. He was a, a brand inspector, and uh, well, he was a brand investigator, but also an inspector. And uh, we're cruising down the road, and he said, hey, you know who Batman is? And I said, 
yeah, of course I know who Batman is, you know. I'm a big fan of Batman. I said, should we call him up on the two-way? And he had the two-way radio in there, you know, and he's got a badge and a gun and siren and a light and all that stuff. And uh, I said, yeah, let's call up Batman. And so he goes, Batman, Batman, this is Jack Nelson. Batman, come <laughs> in. And this guy gets on the phone, or gets on the other end, and he's like, yeah, this is Batman. What can I do for you, Jack? And he's like, oh, I was just wondering if you anything going on, if you need any help with anything. Change tire on the Batmobile, you know, whatever. Yeah, and so this guy is like, well, actually, we've got some bad guys cornered and blah, blah, blah. And Dad, like, flips on the lights and flips on the sirens. Oh. And there's nobody on the interstate, you know. And he just hammers it, and so we're doing, like, 100 miles an hour on the road. And I'm just, like, wringing my hands, knowing that I'm going to get to meet Batman. And then, like, five minutes later, he gets on there and he goes, Oh, we got her all cleaned up, Jack. Thanks for, thanks for calling in to help, but... Pretty elaborate. <laughs> yeah. You yep. know, there's there was one time in Vermilion, I was probably only three or four, but it was around Christmas, and we were sitting in the kitchen, and I think I was sitting on the floor, like, playing with my toys or something, and Jim came in, dressed as Santa Claus, and I knew that it was my <laughs> Uncle Jim. <laughs> sure. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Even then, though, I was three. I knew, I knew it was him. Yeah. Dad dressed up like Santa Claus one time. And Dad has got the same color eyes as me. And uh, green. Yeah. And uh, so he comes in the door, and I'm in, still in my pajamas, and I'm looking at him. He's all dressed up in the, the Santa Claus costume. And I go over to my mom, and I said, I think I know this guy. <laughs> she starts laughing, and she can't stop. And I'm like, "Anybody help me here? I think I know this guy." You know, <laughs> and it just scared the crap out of me. You know, because I thought I knew him. I feel like I'm seeing into Santa's soul right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, your childhood is full of elaborate cons. Yeah, and you know, it's like the tall tale. That whole American tradition with the tall tale. Yeah. You ever you ever read through those? John Henry. My favorite. That that's more of like a legend. So the the tall tale will grow more and more absurd until you until most people can't accept it anymore. And so it'll start out as this great story. And then it'll that'll be a absurd thing that will happen. And then an, uh, another absurd thing that will happen, and uh, until you finally can't, nobody can right. accept the, the tale it. As, yeah. as being anything truthful. But it's like, yeah, it's like that con, and you know, it's a way to measure somebody. If you're telling somebody a story, and they get all the way to the end and go, "My God, is that all true?" Then you know they're they are essentially a fool. Yeah. And in a, you know, in a vast rural land and when you don't and when you're not good at small talk and stuff like that, it was a way to check somebody out. Huh. I didn't even 
think about that in terms of how people operated out there. But it makes complete sense. I feel like that was thing that was something that was prevalent the whole time I was out there. Is people were messing with each other, especially like I don't know, just people good natured fun a lot of yeah. the time, just kind of giving people shit, you know. Yeah, but you can uh, you can also tell a lot about somebody from how they take the how they take the the story. Yeah. In terms of what they believe, you mean? Yeah. I mean, the, the idea, to me, like, I look at, like, the things, like, uh, that people still do that, um, beyond any kind of reasonable uh, level, like uh, uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, stuff like that. Oh, those guys would scare the crap out of me as a kid. Bigfoot? You know, you're your world's pretty small yeah and so you don't know what's out there and so these tales about stuff like that would just scare the crap out of me because i'm like well, what, what is that what started coming <laughs> around here what if he lives in fort peter yeah but you know as you grow older you realize okay yeah that's you start to smell it. bullshit sometimes yeah, you start to smell bullshit but some people and especially with like the internet that's one of the other things is like, so all the information is there, but there's, there's no gatekeeper. Yeah. How much of it is proven is the question. Right. So how do you establish the base by which you have your beliefs? You know, one of the things that, that people talk about a lot when it comes to the, the modern age of technology is that it's advancing way faster than we can regulate it. Yeah way faster than we can come up with laws, way faster than we can prove or disprove everything that's on it. It's just growing yeah. rapidly. Yeah. Yeah, without, uh, without any kind of editing or laws or gatekeepers of any kind. And originally, when the internet first started to become popular, I remember this time, and people were adamant about it being free and open and uh you know that sounds great sounds great and initially it was great like you'd go to these websites and people would just put out all this stuff about all these things that they knew and they would just have a website about you know their hobby or their profession yeah. or whatever and it would all be accurate and people would come and visit it and mm -hmm. you know it was great that way, but it didn't take long for it to just become like a place where anybody could spew any kind of opinions, facts, uh, masquerading as facts a lot of times. I think there can be some value to that in terms of expression when it comes to lack of censorship. Absolutely. But you do lose something when there's – when you, when – there's no regulation. Yeah. See, that's the whole thing about like the whole net neutrality thing that was going on. Uh, what was that? A year, two years ago, when they were trying to, when they were seeing if net neutrality was going to pass. Do you remember that? Well, wasn't it? Uh, I don't remember specifically what happened. I remember something about like the 
I can't even remember the body of the or the agency body that that uh, governs that, but they were just like, no, we're not going to make a school musical anymore. W would it be the NSA? The no, it, it's the oh, we'd have to look it up. I can't remember. Internet regulatory. Yeah, it, and it was uh, one particular guy. I don't even think they, they kind of were at a weak place in their leadership when this happened where they just gunned it down on it. But they allowed the, they allowed the providers to throttle down people based on uh, how much they were paying, essentially. And they never, they never had that before. Everybody was getting the same, the, the same access before, and now they've like throttled it down so that not everybody has the same mm. access. There's a lot of nasty shit going on on the internet. Oh yeah, absolutely. Malicious, nasty shit. Well, it's like a, it's like putting on a mask or something like that. Where oh where yeah, people see anybody you want. People's to sense be. of an anonymity, like they get a VPN and they're just like nobody can touch me. Yeah. Yeah, and some of those people, like, they create layers of, you know, they study it and they create layers of, of obscurity to, um, to stay private. And they'll do awful stuff. They'll say awful stuff. And Have you ever seen catfish? Stuff. No. Do you know about it? No, and I'm not even really sure what catfishing means. So... The show Catfish specifically, I'm not sure if that's where the term originated, but it's like an it's an internet term now. But Catfish was a documentary that this guy, Neve Shulman, made. He fell in love on the internet with this girl on Facebook, I think, and goes to meet her, and she's like 56 and married and has kids and like is totally not who she says she is and is not and like the woman in, her, in the pictures is her daughter and is like away at college and there's like a whole mess of, of information going on she's in love with him this woman that is pretending to be her daughter with a fake name like using pictures of her and the show is just Neve and his crew going around and helping out people who've been in similar situations like they're like hey Neve and Max I think that I'm being catfished, like this person isn't who they say they are. I've been talking to them for months. Uh, they they never FaceTime or or call on the phone. Like it's always in a dark room or whatever. And so they just track down people that are that aren't who they say they are, huh. and get closure to these people who are in relationships with total strangers with a lie. Yeah. Well, and then the jump from that to uh, what was that show that was about that guy that fell in love with? computer program like Siri. Her. Yeah. Great movie. So it's a it's a small jump from Yeah, she's an operating system. To, yeah. To that. She's entirely mm -hmm. digital. Yep. AI. Yeah. That's a great movie though. Well and I think now that they're working on stuff like uh, artificial intelligence, we have to look back at a you know, what makes us unique. The soul you know, it's like yeah, well, I think even more than that. Um, you know, like, uh, there was this big discussion uh, between Pablo Picasso and some of his contemporaries at the time. And they were talking about how uh, 
because of the photographs, because of the um, photography, painters no longer had to represent. And so what was unique about painting and what was, what was the, why would we keep it? And so they started talking about this issue and Picasso decided that he didn't have to sh just show one thing, like a photograph. He could show movements. He could show multiple silhouettes of people. Like he double exposure, kind of. Well, like but even like, like quadruple yeah. to the 16th or whatever. So he's, he starts doing that kind of stuff. But I think we're at, the, we're at a moment again where if you look at something like artificial intelligence, the way that they're the way that they're developing it, the inputs that they develop for the artificial intelligence are not the same thing as actual intelligence. Because like one of the things you start to learn was that if you're taking good care of your body, you're paying attention, you have all your senses about you, you can be in a dark room and you can, as silent as somebody can be, can come in and they'll know they're there. They'll know they're there by pressure difference. They'll know they're there by, uh, you know, uh, like just slight sounds or slight mm -hmm. whatever. But I think we have a we have some other senses that we haven't explored in a long time. I think there are things that uh, we can feel and taste and touch and all this other stuff that you're not gonna be able to give a- Replicate. You're not gonna be able to replicate it with, um, with what they have now, because the inputs are different. I mean, a lot of times, like, you, you hear people talk about chemistry when they're falling off, and there's the pheromones, or the, you know, just the energy around somebody. They don't have to say anything, mm -hmm. they don't have to, and, and things like uh, facial expressions. Mm -hmm and being able to read facial expressions. I think that we're, um, we're, not, we're not involving that in our artificial intelligence. I think what they're trying to well, build is almost- Well, do you know like, about deep fakes? Yeah, yeah. But still, they're, they're doing it, uh, they're doing it without, it's too limited. I, I feel like it's way too limited. Mm -hmm. I think we're still so far superior. And <coughs> I'll also mention this, that uh, back when hydraulics were a big thing, where hydraulics were a new and big thing, people started thinking about their brains as being a hydraulic organism. And that things were moving around and that's how they were getting their ideas. And like, like that they're, um, like the way people talk about their brain being a computer now. Their nerves would send and receive information like a hydraulic system is what they're... Yeah, and their brain would work like a hydraulic system. And so their consciousness and their thought was the hydraulic system. Okay. And so they would think of their brain in this, in this system. And now they do the same thing with computers. You, you know, people talk about data dumps and, mm -hmm. you know, all this kind of stuff, emulating computers. And... We're so much more complex than that. It, it's I absolutely agree. Yeah. 
I mean, when it comes to, there's still a lot of stuff that's really scary. Like the deep fake thing, that really scares me. It's like how long, how long before they can totally cut and paste somebody's face? Like, well, and that was a that was an issue in the in the eighties and nineties when you would see videos where editing started coming in, mm -hmm. and uh, then we were like, well, can we believe? Can we believe this stuff? And if you if you know enough about it, like the the metadata, the original metadata, if it doesn't line up, you know it's fake. And most people don't even know, and there's no way to even uncover that stuff. And so you need like a somebody who's good at this stuff. Like it used to be that the news people you could trust them. What they were putting on was vetted, and it was, as far as they knew, the truth. You know, I think YouTube makes metadata available on their video. I think if you click the gear, like in the settings gear on a YouTube video when you're watching it, I think it'll provide you with the metadata if, you're, if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, but I wouldn't even know how to read it. Oh. I, I know how to, I know that that's an issue. Oh, okay. I know that, like, you can't mess with the file and maintain the metadata. Okay. So, like when, say when like a politician recently does a fake on something, you can, people will look into the metadata and say, no, yeah, that's fake. But how does that spread? I mean, who do you trust? Yeah. Like. Uh, and if you can't see the original metadata, then it's not going to, it's not going to matter if you see the, the metadata for the new one and not the old one because it wouldn't matter if they had matched then because you're seeing them separate from each other right well no the 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 meta i believe that the metadata of the original the sequencing is a big part okay so the sequencing of the numbers and the codes is uh uh makes sense to these and when you mess with it, the sequence no longer makes sense. That's what I mean. Like if you were looking at the sequence for the edited video, but you didn't have the sequence for the original video right in front of you, then there would be no way to know whether the sequence for the edited video matched the original one. Because like the, the YouTube example, I think if you were to look, try to look at the metadata for a single video, it's just that. It's just the data from the video. So if the video is edited, it's just the metadata from the edited version of the video. You know what I mean? I might be wrong, but I think the people that are, are um, more in tune with that stuff know how to read a fake. Huh. Even if even if it's just the... That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. That's... But if you fake the whole thing, then I'm not sure how that would work. You know? I think you can see traces of the deep fake uh, programming. Yeah, that makes sense. It would be over top of it in some spots. Like my, a lot of my uh, know-how about electronics. So I was in the Navy for uh, a while, and for two years, all I did was study electronics and electricity and digital and servo sprinkles, radars. Gives me an understanding of the basics, but wow, there's so much like programming. I, I don't even understand that stuff. But I know how the the hardware works. I don't know how the software, the software right?
You know, it's probably getting close to the point where we should wrap this episode up. Okay. How do you want to wrap it up? In a bow. What's that? I said in a bow. In a bow. Well, I think this is just kind of, it, it feels like just rambling talk. Right? I can set it even as episode two if we want to. I can, I, I'm planning on writing a bio. Oh, okay. So, so well, it, it could make sense as a first episode if there's a bio, but. Okay, yeah, that would work. We can talk about that. <coughs> so you want to make some kind of like uh, uh, thing that you say every time? Oh, I just mean, I just mean, just a little like paragraph on wherever we end up releasing it that just says what it is and what we're about. No, but then if you wrap it up, you want to. <laughs> I don't care. A sign off. What, yeah. What did What did uh, Burgundy say? Ron Stay classy. Burgundy. That's his Stay thing. Stay classy. Stay classy, Emeryville. Right. They Deep under it. the basement of the Salesforce Tower in San Francisco. Coming to you live, not really. Oh, and that story about Batman is really about Batman. But you didn't hear that from us. Okay, goodbye.